Um, right. So, um, oh yeah, there's lots of slides, aren't there? So it's around slide 30 or something. So it's slide number 31 um, we're beginning on um, for people following along on the slides. Um, 31, oh, thank you, Joanne, you got them for me, well done. Okay, you've got a couple of other questions. Um, Samina, what's your thoughts on critical race theory and white supremacy? Um, if that's okay, I think we're gonna answer that in today's class. I won't answer that right away, if that's okay with you. Uh, Dai has asked, um, I was just wondering if you might collate a further reading books article list for the Google folder, particularly things that emerge on, on the run, so to speak. It's great when you include whole documents, but signposts and titles and authors are fab too. Thank you. Yes, very happy to do that. Um, best thing I think what I'm going to do is um, I'm just I'm just going to start a kind of Google. Um, what's it called? Uh, not folder, but documents um, and leave it open for anyone to edit. And if people want to write in there a specific topic that I've kind of mentioned almost in passing, um, then I can just start to collate readings underneath that as well as um, copying and pasting PDFs um, into the folder itself. That's probably the best way to go about it. But it's difficult for me to multitask and remember all the things and whilst talking and, and all that kind of stuff. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, I'll just put a thing. Okay. Um, any other questions? Okay, great. Right, let's get cracking because there's lots to do today. Um, as I mentioned also last week, um, I will share my screen intermittently um, because um, it's nice to be able to see your great faces. Um, and uh, I want you to be able to uh, put your hand up and ask a question or make an intervention um, whenever you want to. And, I've, and I can't see uh, whether you're indicating or not if I'm showing my screen. Uh, so that's why I'm not showing my screen. Okay. So today we're thinking about uh, institutional racism. Uh, so last week we thought about the ways in which we have to fundamentally understand racism as being not simply historically constituted, right? So being, in, um, uh, being embedded in history, but being colonially constituted. So racism doesn't arise because um, some people decide they don't like other people um, and then from them decide they don't like other people and they think that they're bad people or immoral people or lazy people or violent people. They then go and do horrible things to them. Um, the opposite is the case. Um, and through um, capitalist expansion, um, I, uh, always otherwise known as imperialism, um, different peoples in different parts of the world are exploited. Um, African peoples, indigenous peoples in the Americas, people across the, um, the Asian continent, people across um, the indigenous peoples of Australasia. And Europe needs a way to justify the violence and the exploitation and the control that it is deploying um, upon these peoples. And it's racism which is used to justify and rationalize um, the way in which these peoples are exploited um, and violence is imposed upon them. So the necessity for violence and exploitation comes first, and then racism comes to, in order to rationalize and justify um, that exploitation. Um, so in other words, um, for people who might be interested in ideas around Marxism, for instance, um, Marx says that what capitalism does as it, as it expands and incorporates more people into capitalism is that it makes people more and more similar because they're all working under capitalism. But what black Marxism, black Marxism says is that, is that that's not really true. What capitalism actually does is it seeks to make people different to each other and exploit them in different ways to one another, because that's actually more effective for um, maximizing, maximizing profits, but also, of course, dividing workers from each other. 
So um, a, a, a useful historical example of this would be um, in the British Caribbean, where people who are racialized as black would have been um, uh, enslaved, chattel slavery. People racialized as that we would say called South Asian would have been indentured workers and people racialized of white would have been wage earners, right? So all of these people would have been, been exploited by capitalism or imperialism, um, but in different ways, right? And this was very useful because as I mentioned, number one, um, this was necessary for capitalism to be able to um, maximize its profits. Um, but number two, also um, uh, crucially, it divided workers. Um, from each other by pl placing them into these these hierarchies. Uh, so some of some workers consider themselves to be um, above others. Making sense. Very quick, crude recap from Monday. Right. So um, this week we're going to be thinking about institutional racism, um, and I'm going to begin by thinking through two definitions of institutional racism. The first definition of institutional racism is the original definition of institutional racism from when the coin was first termed by uh, two people called um, uh, Charles Hamilton and Kwame Ture, formerly known as uh, Stokely Carmichael. Uh, Charles Hamilton is a prominent African-American um, intellectual, or they both are prominent African-American intellectuals, but um, Kwame Ture is perhaps better known for being um, an organiser with the uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, one of the more radical elements of the civil rights movement in the US South, um, and also was coined the term Black Power and was a very prominent activist and thinker in the US Black Power movement as well. And so I'm going to share my screen quickly because I'm going to, we're going to have a look at the definition that is used in Kwame Ture um, and Charles Hamilton's book um, of the titled Black Power, where they coin this term institutional racism. And so this is what they say on, in page 21 of the book, which unfortunately is now out of print, but you might be able to find a secondhand one somewhere if, you're, if you look very carefully. Um, so what, they, what um, Touré and Hamilton say in this book is that racism is a system of power used to discipline, exploit and facilitate violence, which um, and quoting here, originates in the operation of established and respected forces in society. So what does that mean? That means when he says established and respected forces, what they're basically talking about are our institutions, right? So institutions of government, uh, police, the military, um, our school systems, our health these institutions of, um, of these established institutions and these respected institutions. Black people in this country they're talking about the United States in this context, form a colony. And it is not in the interests of the colonial power to liberate them. So, so here they're talking, that what he's saying is that rather than understanding colonialism simply as something which happens externally um, to a particular nation state or imperial state, as countries like the United States and Britain, I think, can um, be defined, it can also happen internally where racialized, minoritized groups of people, such as black people, um, also have the, a colonial relationship with the state. People are legal citizens of the United States, much as much than perhaps in the way that black people um, were legal um, citizens of empire um, when they lived in Africa, the Caribbean and what have you, as well as of course being some, um, legal citizens of Britain today if they live on the British mainland for the most part. And they have the same legal, legal rights as other citizens, yet they stand as colonial subjects in relation to the white society. And so what this means is that what they're arguing therefore is that the normal functioning of the institutions that exist within the United States produce racist outcomes. 
And they do that because of this colonial relationship that these institutions have, not simply with the white society, which, um, uh, which is associate, which is used to associate power, but more, but more crucially, the colonial relationship they have with, their, with the black and indigenous and other communities of color in the United States. Thus, they argue institutional racism has another name, colonialism. And so what um, Toure and um, Hamilton are arguing here is that the normal functioning of, this is really crucial, the normal functioning of institutions is what pr produces racist outcomes. And this is how we have to understand institutional racism. And the reason the normal functioning of institutions produce racist outcomes is because they are colonially constituted. So the reason it was so crucial for us to have a, a class on history on Monday was because in order to understand policing um, and understand British policing, we have to understand it that it isn't, that it, in order for it to function, um, in order for it to emerge, and, and it required racism because the way in which um, criminality was understood, deviance was understood, danger, violence, political dissidence was understood was fundamentally linked to race because in order to rationalize and justify the policing and therefore the violent control of colonized populations racism was was a, was the fundamental way in which um, uh, that that violence was rationalized and that violence was justified right so just so while um, Britain couldn't necessarily justify deploying particular forms of violence and coercion upon uh, white people on the British mainland, it could justify doing it in its colonies, in Ireland, in, the in parts of the Americas, in Africa, in Australia, in parts of Asia. And the reason it was able to do that was because of the role of race. Am I making sense? Any questions? And this is really crucial because, um, so go ahead, go ahead. I'm sort of, it's, it's kind of slightly blown my mind because everything you say is absolutely true and I know it, but I haven't quite formulated the words in my head before, right? So is it possible to just recap a little bit about what you said? Because there was a lot, just like in two minutes, just to put Yeah, absolutely fine, absolutely fine. Maybe I'll, let, let me use a different example. Um, let's maybe use the example um, of uh, institutional racism in, um, in a museum. Let's think about it in a museum. Right? So um, let's take um, uh, the British Museum, right? Um, and let's imagine that I've been asked to um, help to tackle institutional racism in the British Museum. And, um, and what is often argued um, in the British Museum, um, in museums and other institutions that want to, you know, be woke and all that good stuff, um, is that they need to um, train their staff um, in order to understand racism and colonial history and empire and maybe even capitalism, right? Um, so that they can, um, so that they don't try to, so they don't reproduce it in their interactions with each other um, through their hiring practices, through the way in which they curate um, objects or catalogue objects, um, uh, or through the way in which they make external investments um, and influence knowledge production outside of the institution. But there's a problem, right? And the problem is that the museum has been colonially constituted. So what does that mean? That means that everything that 
has been collected by that museum has been collected through imperialism, through colonialism. So therefore, it has been colonially constituted. But also the power, the, 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 the uh, resources, the money that that, that, universe, that that museum has is also colonially constituted, right? So all of, the, all of the resources and money that it has are also fundamentally linked to colonial racism. But also the external power that museum has today, right? Shaping um, and disproportionately influencing knowledge production across the planet also has, um, is also through, I don't know, UNESCO World Heritage and blah, 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 right? It's also colonially constituted power. So in order for that institution to become anti-racist, it would have to number one, give back all the stuff that it stole, <laughs> Num right? Not simply catalog it in an anti-racist way to be like, you know, this object was like collected through imperial plunder, which was a really bad thing. And let's reflect on that. But no, no, actually give the shit back, right? Number one, right? Num num um, number two, redistribute the wealth that has been um, generated through that, those, that colonial plunder. Um, redistribute it to, you know, the global south in some way that, you know, that, you know, we need to come up with democratically. And, but, and number three, crucially, also um, um, in some ways, distributes the power and influence that it has as well, right? By not, not consistently taking up platforms and dictating or, or to the world to one extent or another, how it is that museums should function, what it is that they should be, how knowledge should be produced. And if the museum did all of those things, it would no longer be the museum as, as we know it, right? It would no longer exist. It would be a different kind of institution. So, so and I think we can understand similar things with policing. Because racism has been so fundamental to policing from its inception, and I'm going to talk about this ad nauseum for the next yeah, little while, um, it can no longer, it cannot exist without reproducing racism. It requires racism in order to be the police. The, um, the prison system relies racism in order to be the prison system. The border system, it's more than any, right, relies on racism in order to be the border system. Right? There, there, the so there can be because yes. the systems are all embedded in racism because the people caught up in those systems are what, you know, is what you're saying. Or, or so, the way it, sorry, let, I don't know. No, let me use a concrete example. Let me use a concrete yeah. example. Um, if you're, this is one I often use for my teaching that, that people find quite useful. If you're suspected of carrying a gun in Tottenham, yeah. North London, you can expect to be stopped by the police. Um, they might even kill you with, dead without asking any questions, right? But if you sell F-16 to Saudi Arabia or cluster bombs to Israel, you'll probably get an OBE, right? So we've got two comparable types of um, uh, violence or harm, the dissemination of weapons. One is criminalized by the police or by the state um, and punished. And one is not simply not criminalized, it's celebrated, right? it's venerated. And so this tells us that even if, like, you know, Superintendent John Smith, you know, checked his positionality or whatever it is that people do these days and, like, did all of the unconscious bias cleansing that's supposed to, like, wash you of your racism, whatever happens these days as well, um, it doesn't matter because by enforcing, the, by being a police officer, that PC Superintendent John Smith has to go and kill Mark Duggan, right? That's, that's right. You don't go, you don't walk into Lockheed Martin and kill the CEO of Lockheed Martin for disseminating cluster bombs to Israel, right? Or F-16s fighter jets to, to Saudi Arabia. But you you go to Tottenham and you shoot Mark Duggan for for sus, suspecting him of carrying a firearm, right? 
Yeah. Um, right, and we can say similar things about, you know, theft, for instance, right? Um, you know, um, or, you know, drugs. Really easy one is drugs, right? If you, if you smoke a spliff on Tottenham High Street, you expect to be stopped by the police, right? Um, but if you sell alcohol and cigarettes, um, you know, tobacco or, or, you know, parts of the pharmaceutical industry, right? you probably get a knighthood, right? So again, we see the dissemination of, of drugs, right, in one way or another. Um, one of them is criminalised and one of them is um, not simply not criminalised, but celebrated, right, a pillar of British industry, right? And so again, if, you know, Superintendent um, John Smith is 100% woke and has read fan art and has like done all of that stuff, right? It doesn't matter. They have to impose, they have to enforce the law as it exists, right? Um, and so the system of, of what we consider to be criminality has far less to do with justice or morality or safety. It has far more to do with race and class. Right? There is no consistence, consistency, right? We could, uh, right, the example, the example I often use is that like, there are mothers who, who did years in jail for handling goods, stolen goods um, taken during the, um, the riots of 2011, right? They, working class mothers put behind bars for that, right? But if you, um, if you bomb Iraq, cancel all the oil contracts that exist there, sign new oil contracts of your oil companies, make billions of pounds out of it and kill a million and a half people in the, in the process, you'll probably be made Middle East peace envoy, right? So we have two, two examples of theft, right? Violent theft, one of which again is, um, uh, is criminalized and punished, and the other one which is not only not criminalized and punished, but leads you to becoming Middle East peace envoy, right? Um, okay, we've got a couple of hands. Um, so no son, then Hina. Hi. <clears throat> Hi, I um, completely agree with all the definitions of institutional racism you initially um, spoke about. And uh, I think it's actually led me to actually start to think that um, the definition of institutional racism is a fast. But the question I have is how does this differ from structural racism, the definitions you just gave? And my second question is, the way we've conceptualized um, institutional racism makes it sound like institutional racism and ra institutional racism is consciously perpetrated. You know, and that's a little bit yeah, difficult for me to comprehend that this sort of institutional racism is consciously and perpetrated. I don't know if you can maybe explain a little yeah. bit about, yeah. Yeah, sure. Okay, so the first thing about the difference between structural and institutional racism, I guess institutional racism, we're talking about individual institutions, right? The police, the court system, the prison system, the border system, and structural racism, it generally refers to the state and capital together, right? State racism, racial capitalism, um, kind of together as a, as a broader system, right? Whereas institutional racism, we can look at the British Museum, Greenwich University, Metropolitan Police. Um, Second thing, I don't think that institutional racism, quite the opposite, institutional racism is not um, um, intentional, right? which is why I said that even if PC Joe blogs is like hashtag woke, right, and therefore not intentionally reproducing racism, PC Joe blogs will still reproduce racism simply by being a police officer, because racism is fundamental to what it means to police society, as we know it. Um, and I'm going to give more examples, more clear examples of this as we go on, I promise. Um, we've only just, 
only just begun. Okay, um, Hina. Thanks, Adam. Um, so just following on from your last point, you mentioned that the system of criminality, the way that we've designed it, isn't really based on what is right and it is on what is moral. Can I challenge that? It kind of is, but only because morality is also has been defined by what we see as racism. So what we see as this is legitimate drug use versus we don't really like a bit of cannabis is also defined by the kind of drugs and the kind of people we like using drugs. The one thing I would challenge is, Adam, I come away from these meetings thinking, what's the point being a part of any institution? Because there's no way to change any of it. But maybe we can approach that at the end. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Friday is the day of resistance, right? Um, so we can definitely talk about that in a lot of detail then. Um, uh, so once again, your first um, question was about, oh God, sorry, I, have to, I only remember the second one. What was your first question again? Really sorry. Just about morality. Oh, morality, uh, yes. yes. What is morality? Yeah, okay, of course, yeah. So morality is a relative concept. So um, of course, um, the people who may create the laws and or maybe or simply advocate for the laws will say well yes well you know cigarettes are not as immoral as um uh, you know a cannabis cigarette um and um you know drinking you know uh, vodka is you know very moral but you know taking an xd pill is just crass and terrible and the more you know the moral fabric of our society will you know descend into oblivion as we know you know if if we allow such a thing to take place so yes morality is is a relative concept um i probably should have said yeah um as far as i'm concerned um or may, maybe rather than morality what i should have instead said is um harm um maybe would have been a better word than morality Go ahead, Pina. I was just going to, the points that you made in, I would say last week, but on Monday's call around sort of, you know, the sort of first wave where we talked about um, religion. Um, and is it fair to say that the way we've designed what is criminality and what is lawful and what is morality has been defined by sort of how we saw religion, but also that that had its, or whatever we saw was like white Christian class of this is the right way to be and this is not. Do we still think that there was roots in the way we defined morality because of the relationship with race and religion at the same time. I, the, the reason I ask is, what if you take your definitions of morality from, oh, I'm a Muslim or I'm a Christian and my Bible tells me to do so, and we've then imposed that. I, I don't think you separate it from racism because we impose the way we want to, but you know, my family's Muslim, right? I'm Muslim and alcohol's not a good thing. And then again, neither are any drugs, so it's kind of quite consistent, but what would you say to the argument that, you know, white Christian society has defined its morals by what they thought the Bible told them? Um, I think that I think that Christianity is important for like the establishments, for the, the foundations of the Enlightenment. Um, you know, and a lot of, of course, Enlightenment thinkers, you know, people like Hobbes and Locke, which we don't have time to go into, um, were um, obviously, you know, very Christian and um, thought uh, very carefully about the role of the Bible in shaping morality. And of course, um, so we, we can see those links, but I wouldn't overstate Christianity. Um, and I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily overstate Christianity as um, the defining, as one of the, as, as, um, as shaping our notions of morality today. And I think that I think that a multitude of things have, have shaped our, our conception of morality. And I think that, yeah, in addition to kind of Christian values, um, I think it's perhaps more useful to think through the ways in which, yeah, gender and class um, and race have shaped what we consider to be moral and what we consider to be immoral and what we consider to be um, deviant and what we consider to be honorable, um, perhaps more so than religion. But of course, religion obviously helped to produce and reproduce um, uh, uh, gendered and classed and to extend racialized ideas as well. Um, 
yeah hopefully that's helpful um but yeah the thing about what's the point in working in an institution Whew, i'm definitely gonna get to that one <laughs> um uh, oh, Thomas, sorry, you've got a hand up. Sorry about that. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I find this really interesting also because, you know, in the colonies, like um, in Jamaica, for example, we had flogging legally on the books until I think 1998, right? And um, so people were flogged. This was from the British, of course, right? Singapore, I think, still does it, right? You can still get lashes. So it's like we have then inherited not only the strategy and the policing superstructure, but the, the, this colonial kind of um, mindset of how we discipline our own. So we are recreating and reinscribing this violence, but it becomes us doing it to ourselves. And that, is, that shows the success of those colonial projects in the most brutal way. And the way that we also beat our children, I mean, because that, that's very much also the corporal, uh, corporal uh, 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 discipline in families in Jamaica is in my experience is very much a part of how we live as well. And that's also inherited from the British. Yeah, no, certainly. And, and like and another very prominent, um, I think, uh, example of that is the way in which uh, laws criminalizing LGBTQ people in many of Britain's former colonies are these kind of colonial hangovers, which, so Britain like went to these parts of the world wanted to impose this heteronormative nuclear family um, on uh, the peoples it was colonizing because that was considered to um, uh, be a, a good way of imposing order and discipline and obedience upon those upon those populations um, and uh, those kind of those those laws continue in the post-colonial period but of course what does Britain do now it goes around the world and says what you've got all of these terribly uh, discriminatory laws why have you got that well, you need to be more like us and be more enlightened um, and um, <laughs> um, um, and, and well, if, if in word, if not in deed, anyway, um, uh, makes these kinds of um, uh, overtures uh, to, uh, to global South nations. So we see the ways in which these, um, these, these legacies also um, reproduce just, just really quickly, kind of gendered and sexual. Sorry, just really quickly. Also, one of the ironies of that that you just said is that in a place like Jamaica, traditionally and stereotypically, white British men were seen as pedophiles particularly with an interest in male sexual abuse and carnal abuse, as it was called, right? And this comes out of slavery, right, as well. So that the whole idea of like a man coming from England to interfere with your child, you have to be very watchful if you see people coming from England because they're all pedophiles, well, the men especially, right? Oh, interesting. It's really complex, Just to, that's all I have to say. Interesting, interesting. Okay, any other thoughts before we move on to the slightly different McPherson Report's definition of institutional racism. Other questions? Ready to talk about McPherson? Okay. Um, I'm going to share my screen again just so we can all um, have a gander at this together. So, um, crucially, um, McPherson, the McPherson Report did uh, quote and cite uh, Stoney Carmichael and Charles Hamilton's Black Power and their definition of institutional racism. Yet what's even more crucial is that they selectively quoted from um, the, um, this publication, this original iteration of the term. So what they said, what the first report says in this definition of institutional racism is that it is the collective failure of an organization to provide an appropriate and professional service to people because of their color culture and ethnic origin. I think crucial here is um, the term failure. Right? So 
rather than um, as study, study Carmichael and um, or as Touré and Hamilton argue, um, these institutions, the normal functioning of these institutions is what produces racism because they're colonial institutions. And therefore, when they reproduce racism, they were doing what they were designed to do. For McPherson, um, these are failing if they reproduce racism. They are failing in what they are supposed to do if they do not provide an appropriate and professional service to, um, the, uh, to people because of their colour, culture or ethnic origin. Um, it goes on. It can be seen or detected in processes, attitudes and behaviour that amounts to discrimination through prejudice, ignorance, thoughtlessness and racist stereotyping which disadvantage minority ethnic people. And so what I would argue here, um, and this is my this is my my interpretation, is that these are two different interpretations of institutional racism. One I would argue I would describe as radical, and the other I would describe as liberal. And why do I do that? So the radical critique of institutional racism, right? Um, which uh, to quote both Karl Marx and Andrew Davis, is about grasping things at the roots. What are the roots of these institutions? Where have they emerged from, right? And to note that they emerge out of a colonial context, right? And therefore racism is fundamental to how, um, uh, to, to how these institutions uh, govern. And therefore appreciate the fact that um, it is therefore the normal function of these institutions um, to produce these racist outcomes. The Lawrence inquiry does something quite different. It has a, a more liberal interpretation. And I would say that that liberal interpretation understands um, institutions as being kind of almost empty vessels, empty, neutral, objective vessels, which can be filled with different policies and different practitioners. Um, and sometimes those policies and practitioners can be discriminatory um, or biased or prejudiced. And sometimes those policies and and practitioners can be progressive and anti-racist and maybe woke or whatever. Um, and depending on how we fill this objective neutral vessel that we call the institution, um, and whether we fill this objective neutral vessel with either um, racists or anti-racists, with uh, you know an ethically diverse um, uh, staff membership or a, or, a, or a homogenous one, um, with um, anti-racist policies and practices or, or, or not, um, will determine the outcomes of that institution. Am I making sense? Any questions? No. Okay, super. Um, so, um, and so it is from um, uh, McPherson's interpretation of institutional racism that you that the institutions are effectively yeah these kind of I'm trying to make a vessel with my hands but a vessel and this empty vessel where you can pour um, you know get rid of you know you can get out the bad stuff and then put in the good stuff, and then it's all going to be much better and eventually hopefully nice and perfect, that we see the emergence of um, things like race equality training and unconscious bias training. Because one of the ideas, therefore, that leads on from that is that, okay, there are people who work in this institution who are reproducing biases in, in, in um, the work that they do or the policies that they um, implement or the practice um, that they engage in. And very much that, very often that, though, that bias might be unconscious. So therefore we need psychologists to come in to um, do this unconscious bias training to um, uh, 
help them to identify where these biases lie. And therefore, once they can identify them, um, they can hopefully stop doing them. Um, and I think one of the things that that does is, is um, it's crucial. I think there are two things that that does. Number one, the first thing it does is it dehistoricizes these institutions, right? It kind of it kind of starts the clock. I don't know in 1993 when Stephen Lawrence is killed, right? Rather than I don't know in 1498 or wherever I decided to start our, our history um, on Monday. Um, and the second thing, of course, it does is that it decouples institutions like um, like the police from the power of of the state and of capitalism. Right. It treats it as a as a kind of a, not simply a neutral objective vessel, but a um, um, a vessel which is an island, an island on itself um, that exists kind of on its own, and that and we can just we can change how it operates um, outside of these other structures. Structures to go back to um, uh, Nosa's question, these other structures of power, namely capital and the state, which both rely on racism to feel capitalism, to exploit people differently in order to um, number one, maximize profits and number two, divide workers, but also the state, which relies on uh, categorizing people differently in order to govern them differently in, um, in a hierarchical manner. Everyone's still with me. Any questions? Uh, B? Yeah, is that like the difference between people, I guess, calling for police reform versus people calling for police abolition? Like they're kind of coming from those two different critiques of policing, kind of. Almost, okay. almost. I would argue that um, it's more um, the difference between what are referred to as abolitionist reforms and non-abolitionist reforms, which we're going to talk about in a lot more detail on Friday, but very quickly, um, an abolitionist reform would erode the power and resources that the police and prison system have um, and be a reform which instead empowers other institutions or preferably community institutions like mental health practitioners or youth workers or um, trade unions um, and an abolition and a non-abolitionist reform would actually um, reinforce the power of the police by further justifying and, and rationalizing their existence by um, uh, yeah, by providing them with lots of anti-racism training. So we've got lots of woke police officers, um, for instance. Does that make sense? Um, but I'll, as I said, we'll be talking about that in a lot more detail on Friday. I feel a um, little bit like crawling under my desk and hiding. Because... <laughs> oh. No, no. Because everything you say is absolutely right, and I know it, right? I'm a race educator, right? And I do talk about slavery and all of that stuff, right? But I, and you know, and I don't believe in this unconscious bias training because it doesn't lead to behavioral change, but it is part of this training package I offer. And I wonder what I achieve when I listen to you. Uh, you know, I think, oh, because I'm bringing in all this history and what, you know, but I'm just kind of sticking a plaster on it and teaching all these people to be woke, right? And I feel like I just want to, hide right now and i'm so grateful for you but i need i need you to come up with some better answers that i can do instead right which organizations will take because they won't take give all your plundered gold back to those little black people right they're not going to be doing that right so what i wish we could get there we've got, we've got i know friday we've can't come time, soon right we got friday cannot come soon enough mate <laughs> Um, okay, cool. Okay, cool. We're getting there. We're getting there. We will do resistance on Friday. Stay sitting at my desk. I don't have to crawl under yet. No, no, no crawling. No crawling. Okay. Yeah. Heads high, everyone. Um, uh, yeah. 
resistance on Friday, I promise. And also there's May Day protests on Saturday if you feel safe enough to go to a protest, which will just be like abolition. Okay, um, Nathaniel, you got a hand up. Okay, it was just kind of in response to, in response to, is it Rad, Raggy or Raggy? Raggy, Raggy. Raggy, because um, obviously do the same type of work and it's frustrating because I think it, a lot of times I think about where we want to get to at the end point, which is like what we talk about, right? But there's a lot of the in-between. So to get a company to actually realise, well, yes, I need to get rid of this and relinquish all my power, there's a process there. And I'm not sure if I'm going to surprise change the answer, but there needs to be some sort of vehicle for that, that thought process to happen because obviously me as a, a like, racialised person or someone that reads... And like, have an understanding that other people don't. Um, so for them to get that understanding, they need it somewhere. Um, and it's got to come from someone. So like, it's the part, I think it's just all a part of that process. Like, you can make me want to throw the laptop and, and never agree to do the session again. But I feel like there is a, a merit in, in trying to bring people on that journey. Um, yes, um, I didn't mean for any of my analysis to be like, resistance is futile, don't bother, don't do anything, just just lie down, just take the racism, just take it, there's no, like, that's not what I'm here for at all, that's not what I'm here to do at all. <laughs> so, sorry, yeah, I didn't mean, honestly didn't mean to, yeah, people to get that impression. Um, yeah, uh, resistance is fertile, um, and um, and there's lots that we can do. Um, um, but um, I, yeah, I th and, and also, of course, education is important and learning about racism is important. Learning about racism isn't just useless. Um, um, but I think that the extent to which institutions will change will never go down without a fight, right? Um, because I, I've, I'm, I'm yet to come across an institution which actively wants to redistribute its power um, to to other people or other institutions. I mean, it's it's not really in the nature of institutions to do that. Institutions, once an institution becomes an institution, it's, it's one of its primary roles is to reproduce itself um, in one way or another. Um, and, um, I, you know, I, I could be wrong. Um, there might be some kind of examples of that, um, but generally institutions don't want to give power to um, what are some often considered, considered as competitors, um, uh, even if it's not articulated as such. Any other points or questions or thoughts, um, including, Adi, you've made me feel so disempowered. I just want to cry for the rest of the afternoon. But don't, don't cry. Um, it's going to be, it's going to be, everything's going to be fine, I promise. Okay, right, so we're going to move on now to some more concrete. I'm going to get a bit more concrete with you guys. Actually, no, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk about our reading. I haven't talked about the reading yet. Ah, ah, Gus, old Gus. All right, so we're going to talk about Gus John, um, who's had, who's been in the same dilemma as, I hope people had hope you had time to do the reading, but Gus John is kind of articulating perhaps the dilemma that Hina, Nathaniel, uh, Raggy, you guys have all kind of articulated a little bit, right? Where he's being brought in to um, do this kind of training. He's just like, what the hell is this? Um, ah, but he's he's thinking through it, right? He, and I feel like um, even though it was written back in 2019, um, a couple of years ago, um, he's kind of thinking through these questions um, with us, I hope. Uh, so let me, I'm going to share my screen again so we can all have a look at, I've picked out two quotes from the reading and I'm just going to talk through them and just unpack them a little bit, think about what it is that Gus John is saying, and if people have got further questions about the reading, then we can discuss them. Okay, right. First quote from um, Uncle Gus is, um, 
the ins- oh sorry for, for anyone who didn't have time to do the reading uh gus john was um was and is it is a um obviously a professor as you can see uh, he's Professor Emeritus in Institute of Education, and he is a prominent anti-racist activist. He was coordinator of multiple defence campaigns following the 1980s rebellions that we talked about on Monday, um, including the Toxif defence campaign and the Moss Side defence campaign. Uh, he also used to write for a radical publication called Race Today, um, and uh, he was also a prominent um, ag- um, activist on the Stephen Lawrence campaign um, and gave evidence to the Northeast Inquiry. Uh, so he says here, um, after looking twenty, after reflecting on uh, the recommendations which were um, suggested or recommended by the McPherson inquiry um, towards how we're going to improve policing, um, and he says that basically in, he reflects on that the training has had relatively little effect on improving um, uh, the problem of that, that black communities face um, in relation to police racism. And so he says here in his analysis of institutional racism, the institutional racism in the police cannot be separated from the structural racism of the state. Um, So this institution, this one body, the police, um, should not be understood as being operating in isolation from state power and, of course, capitalism. Um, um, as manifested in, then he gives us some examples, immigration laws, border control practices, the civil service, um, uh, the failure to tackle the legacies of empire in our education system, um, the failure to guarantee black people's rights, um, blah, 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 the list could go on, and of course it does. In other words, Gus John says, the state exemplifies the failure to understand how structural, cultural and institutional and personal forms of racism and discrimination intersect and manifest in people's everyday life. Now, I guess I would probably disagree with Gus um, that's in in his use of the word failure. Um, And I think he would probably agree with me. I might be arrogant enough to say um, that actually the, if we understand that as he says in the previous sentence the structural race the, the structural racism of the state then if there's if the state is structurally racist then it is not a failure of the state to understand structural cultural institutional and personal forms of racism it is actually the function of the state to um to not well when we say understand um, we don't mean they just you know they don't understand the concepts it means that they're, they're to deal with structural cultural institutional and personal forms of racism Okay, one more. And here he critiques, he's critiquing um, um, uh, the uh, McPherson definition of institutional racism. He says, McPherson's construct of unwitting prejudice, um, or what we often refer to as we've discussed today, unconscious bias, has been translated into unconscious bias that gives rise to attitudes and behaviours which people with protected characteristics experience as discrimination or exclusion on account of discrimination. The problem with unconscious bias, however, is that it is more often than not assumed to relate to the actions, behaviours and decisions of decision-making of decision-making individuals as distinct from institutional structures policies, processes, and practices. Right? So I think I think that Gus is kind of echoing what I was what I've been trying to um, convey uh, uh, this afternoon that rather than um, the institutions being these empty vessels where we can pour in um, these um, uh, new newly formed uh, anti-racist and no longer unconsciously or consciously biased individuals, we have to understand the normal functioning of these institutional structures and their policies and their processes and their practices and the way in which they operate or the way in which they govern um, uh, 
uh, as being how racism is reproduced. Um, it is for this reason the late Sivan and then director of the Institute of Race Relations offered an alternative definition of institutional racism, in which he said institutional racism is that which covertly or overtly resides in the policies, procedures, operations, and culture of public or private institutions, reinforcing individual prejudices and being reinforced by them in turn. Right? And this is really crucial, this final bit, because in, in arguing that it is the individual people who work at an institution um, and their, um, the, the practices that they reproduce and maybe the policies that they come up with um, that make the institution racist is kind of like saying the tail wags the dog. Right? It's, what, what actually happens is the opposite. It is the institution which requires racism, both in order to be established in the first place, but also to reproduce its power that leads to the people who work there reproducing uh, prejudice um, and, um, and bias, right? Because think about it. If you are a police officer with, who doesn't have a racist bone in their body, but in order to be a police officer, you can't go and arrest the people at BAE Systems Right? You can't go and arrest the people that own American tobacco. You have to go and arrest the young people on the estate who you suspect of smoking a spliff and getting in a, a fight with each other. Then, of course, eventually, not of course, but it is highly likely you're going to start to hold prejudicial views against those people. Right? But it's the institution that comes first and the prejudice after. Sorry, Thomas, I see you waving. Go ahead. Did I on that though I, I just wonder I would slightly disagree and say that would it not be the entire enveloping system of white supremacy that just makes everything already contaminated so that you already from birth just by virtue of the fact that people grew up speaking English as a privileged language and because of the way that Britain just so insidiously incorporates white supremacy in every avenue of life that it's not just working to become a police officer or becoming one, but whether you're a clerk, whether you're a nurse, whether everything is embedded, that's what I would think, right? Or is that wrong? Yeah, no, no, I think I completely agree. I mean, when I said, um, I guess it was a, it was a, um, it was a quite a silly example, because I said, even if you're a police officer who doesn't have a racist bone in their body, right, which is obviously, that doesn't exist. But even if that were the case, right, if you enter the police forces, it's like, pure woke person um, somehow, which obviously is impossible. But even if that were the case, in work in, that, in entering that institution, that is where those your those prejudices would most likely arise because of the way in which you have to govern, the way in which you have to function in order to reproduce the power of the institution which you're employed by. If that makes sense. Um, but yes, obviously, no one is free from prejudice. No one is free from racism. It's everywhere, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, but even if that were the case in some other weird universe I've just created, but forgot to tell you guys I did that. Yeah, anyway, um, we've got two hands, Nosa and then Hina. Oh, I can't hear you, Nosa. I don't know if there's some kind of microphone thing. Mm, no. Um, should, should we come back to you in a, in a sec? No, so I think you might just need to go, go ahead, Hina. 
this element. So one of the things I was thinking about, obviously, in my sort of hat as a policymaker, trying to think, well, if you're in the system, maybe there's a little bit you can do before we get to abolition. And um, so I was thinking about sort of um, the commitment for, I mean, I, you know, there's lots in, in policing right now around, well, if we commit to racial justice, and if we as an organisation are really committing to racial justice, then here's all the things that we do on diversity training. And here's all these things that we do on data. And I think about stop and search as an example, which could be you could be a black officer from Brixton or Croydon, which is where I'm from, and you could have lived your life knowing what stop and search feels like, and you could, you know, be, be as woke as they come. You could be an abolitionist, right? But the fact that you join, I guess you couldn't because you wouldn't join the police force, right? But let's say you're a black officer and you're sort of really committed to the discussion up until now. But the second you go out on that street and you put that uniform and you stop and search another kid, you are already buying into it's the process of those policies and legislation in action. The reason you are stopping and searching, the reason stop and search is even a policy that exists, which means no amount of improving the quality of interactions could tackle the problem. And I guess the reason I raise that question is if we're if we're in this discussion, but we're all looking at sort of the mass amounts of issues we've seen in the last year in the US alone, but in the UK as well, of how restraint was used and how force was used, it's almost irrelevant, right? You could have used restraint and you could have done the absolute right thing in that circumstance. The fact is, is that you are in that circumstance, which is, and, and, and I guess the, the challenge for me is, is can you at some point do both at the same time? Can you consider one in the short term of improving quality of encounters? Or is there no point? Because does that then only contribute to justify and legitimize a situation by making it feel a bit better? Which then makes me think, is the stuff we do in the short term a bit pointless? Because it all only then like inevitably moves the discussion about resistance because you then don't need it because it doesn't feel that, that necessary. Um, so that that's just my question around sort of the, the stuff that we may, the reason we might all be in this discussion is because we're thinking, what can I do today? What can I do tomorrow? What is there a chance that the stuff we're doing today and tomorrow may not actually be that useful in the grand scheme of things? And you're nodding because I know that's the answer. No, no, no. I'm trying to fix it, burn it all down. So, so I think that I'm not saying, I'm not saying like burn it all down tomorrow, um, but I would say that yeah, making stop and search a, a less unpleasant experience um, uh, would be a, would be an example of a non-abolitionist reform. Right? So a, a non-abolitionist reform would say, um, yes, let's train officers so that they say please and thank you when they stop and search someone, um, and they don't put like a spit hood over your face when they're doing it. Right? That's that's a, that's would be a non-abolitionist reform. An abolitionist reform would say, how about we just reduce massively or even actually find an alternative to stop and search um, by I don't know decriminalizing cannabis which is what most and decriminalizing drugs which is what most stop and searches are for um, and thinking about other ways to reduce youth violence by um, improving on our youth services and our mental health provision and ending school exclusion and um, bringing back the educational maintenance allowance and scrapping tuition fees and uh, introducing council housing for under 25s and all of these other things that we can do, which are likely to make people far less likely to, number one, um, uh, commit acts of harm against other people, and number two, come into contact with the criminal justice system. Um, so uh, yeah, Samina, yeah, education is, I think education is certainly, education is obviously not a silver bullet, but I think, yeah, access to education is certainly a, a really um, crucial reform, I think. Um, uh, no, sorry. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry I, I don't mean just, you know, educate, but it's just this knowledge, isn't it? Because you know, I think for all of us here, we're, we're reading so much more about the history and the background and all sorts of things that 
we kind of had a feeling about that this, there's something not quite right here. And, and this idea of the more information we have, it does your head in, like how Reggie was saying earlier, you're kind of exploding, aren't you? And you kind of want to shout at people because you not see it. Do you know what I mean? And, and this thing, this whole infrastructure that you're saying is so hard. It feels like we need to get out of the matrix. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's what I meant about future generations and how we are reframing things for the younger people that are already being born into the racist structure that we live in. Uh, that's where I'm at, I think. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, a lot of the younger generation are kind of reframing stuff for us as well, which I think is also super great. Um, uh, no, sir, I don't know if you've managed to... No, get... I, can, can you hear me? Oh, you're back. Yes, oh, we great, can thanks. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking because this was before um, Thomas actually um, made his point where I was thinking, for example, where does white supremacy fit into all of this? Because I'm thinking like a country like Iceland, for example, that was literally poor until like 1920, but still the immigration um, system and everything is literally comparable, but maybe not policing because obviously they don't really have a racialized, lot of racialized body here to police. So I'm thinking specifically things like immigration that can be comparable to like, as bad as the US and the UK, how does sort of like this colonial and uh, imperialist structure fit into countries that also have the same system like the UK, you know? So yeah. my, my answer there, my, the first thing I think about is this global white supremacy that Charles Smith spoke about, so. Yeah, um, so it's a really good question, a um, massive one. Um, so what I'll say is that, uh, I guess when I talk about racial capitalism, I'm kind of implicitly talking about white supremacy because racial capitalism seeks to put human beings into a hierarchy and put, and white whiteness is the supreme, right, within that hierarchy. So assume that when I'm talking about racial capitalism, I'm also kind of referring to um, white supremacy, but um, acknowledging the fact that we have to understand uh, capitalism as being the way in which white supremacy becomes material. If that makes sense. Yes, um, that right, you can't touch white supremacy. It's not <laughs> right. It's not. It's not tangible. Uh, capital is tangible, right? Um, you know, prisons are tangible. Tanks are tangible. Um, factories and um, plantations are tangible. These are the things. These are the ways in which white supremacy becomes tangible. Um, with um, Kwame Ture, author of Black Power, has got a really great quote where he says that um, uh, if a white man wants to lynch me, then it's his problem. But if a white man has the power to lynch me, then it's my problem. And it's white supremacy that wants the white man to want to lynch me, but it's capitalism that gives him the power to lynch me. Right? So, it's, so th and that's why I often refer to this term racial capitalism because of um, uh, it helps us to, re it reaffirms the necessity of appreciating how white supremacy becomes tangible. Um, Reggie, is that an old hand? Is that a new hand? Uh, no, it's a new hand. Um, I'm just interested in one thing. Um, I really understand what you're saying when you're talking about the police or you're talking about arms sales, or you're talking about immigration control, all that, right? It's clear, right? But um, I'm working in a lot of charities like refugee charities, or I'm working a lot with violence against women projects and things like that, right? And I'm wondering how you would equate that in terms of the, in the institutional stuff, how would you equate that with organizations that have a different kind of, I mean, uh, is it the same for you? Is it different? What What do you think? Um, yeah, I think the charity sector is certainly different to the police. Um, but um, of course, it's charities white led, and it's you know it's all. But yeah, so sorry. Go ahead. But yeah, but but I think even if charities were you know even charities that are full, I've worked at I've worked at all black charities before. Um, that my first jobs when I graduated were like youth 
youth organizations run completely by black people but they well i think what i think crucially about the charity sector is that charities have to be non-political but the problem is the issues that they're dealing with are fundamentally political yeah. um so a refugee charity for instance isn't necessarily able to like have a political critique of borders but that is what is fundamentally required in order for them to do the anti-racist work that's necessary to um, you know, to make refugees treated in a humane manner, right? Yeah. Um, so in order for refugee charities to become anti-racist, they would have to no longer be charitable, right? Because in order for them to do the anti-racist work necessary mm-hmm. to, for them to achieve the aim of um, humanity for refugees, they would have to start doing something political. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, it's like, also like, num- number one, it's fine, we all live under capitalism. I was a youth worker doing like the most terrible youth work stuff where basically you had to go to the council estates and teach people like, you know, um, employability skills and like the most like patronizing crass terrible <laughs> stuff, right? But I had to eat, so like, I had to pay my rent. I had to like do things. And I just tried to, I had to, I had to try to um, run workshops with the young people and do stuff that was radical as much as I possibly could um, and spend time outside of my working hours you know, working, you know, doing the kind of youth work that isn't, that you don't get paid for, right? Because all the funders really care about are, can you get knives off our streets? Can you get these young people to become good cogs in the capitalist machine? Right, if you can't do that, who cares? Um, because you can't cross it on a graph. Um, uh, so I, yeah, and I think this, I think the second thing is that, uh, I can't remember what the second thing is, um, but yeah, there's lots of resistance. Uh, I feel so bad that I've like destroyed everyone's hopes and dreams. I, don't, I really don't mean to do that. <laughs> we, I, I'll hopefully yeah by the end of Friday you'll all be feeling like yeah um I've, not, I've noticed there's some there's something in the chat as well so I just want to quickly uh, Amber is there still hope yes there's still hope Amber um I'm, 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 I do, okay yeah I, okay so uh, Amber's asked what um she can do on a personal level uh, to change racism I mean crucially there is no blueprint to how to resist racism there is no, unfortunately, if there were a blueprint, I haven't read it yet, because um, I imagine if there were a blueprint, it would be published somewhere at least, um, or someone would put it online, wouldn't they? Um, but um, what we're going to do, to, we are going to talk about, hopefully some of today, but certainly lots of Friday, lots of Friday, are some of the different ways in which people are resisting both structural and institutional racism. Um, but I, I would stress that I'm, yeah, I'm focused on structural and institutional racism more than interpersonal racism. Um, I, I, know, I know relatively little about that um, professionally, um, although of course I know a lot about it interpersonally. But um, I save that stuff for when I'm down the pub having a rant. Um, okay, there's two more questions in the chat, but um, we've been going for an hour and I feel like people deserve a bit of a break. Do you, shall, we, shall we take five? It's four minutes past three. Shall we come back at 10 past three? Is that okay? Just quickly, yeah, put the kettle on, go to the loo, think happy thoughts. Um, Yeah, see you at 10 past three.
Okay. Hi, everyone. Hope, you've, hope you enjoyed your very fleeting uh, break. Um, I'm just going to read through the questions before, um, while people come back, and then I hopefully I can answer them once everyone's here. Okay, um, so I'm gonna, um, no, sir, are you back? Because I'm gonna answer your question. So I hope, um, I'll, I'll wait for you to come back now. Oh, you're there, you're with us. Okay, no, so I'm gonna start with your question. So, um, uh, so Nose's got a question about um, whether uh, rac racialized people um, uh, also perpetuate institutional racism. The answer is, of course, yes. Um, I mean, uh, a, a recent report um, commissioned by this current government is uh, probably one useful example. Um, but there, of course, there are many far more historical examples, right? So um, uh, getting um, uh, colonized people to do the racial, the racializing of empire um, has been a very long, um, uh, has a very long history, right? From black people being necessary um, workers, um, as overseers on slave plantations, but I think possibly more, um, uh, perhaps better known is the fact that you know the, the Britain couldn't on its own colonize large swathes of you know Africa, the Caribbean, um, uh, parts of Asia, etc. They needed to incorporate um, local colonized people into its police forces and its uh, justice systems and its schools and its churches and its other institutions of power and control and coercion and violence. And so yes, I think for as long as racism has existed, it's required people from the subordinated or the oppressed groups in order to reproduce that racial power. Okay. Yeah, sorry, sorry, Adam. Um, but the question I have is, given everything that's been happening um, in this day and age since the 2020 protests and, and the fact that, yeah, do you think that this is something that racialized people will still be doing, you know, given this? I mean, evidently, yes. I mean. I mean, yeah, I mean, there were, there were black people who worked for the apartheid government in South Africa, right? I mean, that was pretty bad. So, I mean, if black people were going to work for the apartheid government in South Africa, I mean, if Tony Saul's going to write a crappy report. Yeah. Peanuts, mate. Right. Um, okay. Um, load of dice. Oh, yeah, that's a good point, Samina. Um, thinking about compete. Okay, so, um, so Samina's made an interesting point about competing inequalities. I wouldn't necessarily understood the, understand these as being competing inequalities, gender versus ethnicity or race. I would instead understand um, patriarchy as racism as both operating together in ways that reproduce connected forms of domination and oppression. Um, rather than having them compete with each other. I guess I touched on this a little bit last week when I talked about the role of um, the family, the nuclear fam the heteronormative nuclear family as being a really crucial way in which both capitalism um, could reproduce its power, but also how empire reproduces its power, as well as, of course, racism being a way in which uh, capitalism uh, expanded and reproduced its power. And rather than these two um, processes kind of competing with each other, they were actually what we might call mutually constituted, right? They they operated alongside one another. Um, if that kind of makes sense. And I think um, particularly when we think about resistance, and I, I, so for instance, a really good 
um, example that's very relevant for today um, are the campaigns that we're seeing um, against policing um, from the grassroots, right? So those linked to the um, groups like Sisters Uncut and the Sarah Everard protests, where a lot of women or feminists are organising um, against um, uh, policing, talking about how it reproduces patriarchal power, whereas you have Black Lives Matter organisations talking about um, how um, uh, policing reproduces racism. But these two groups aren't competing with each other as to you know who's the most oppressed or what the most you know uh, urgent thing is it's actually it's it's demonstrating how these um processes are, are, are operates together and therefore we can see the ways in which these forms of oppression are fundamentally linked together and um, thus necessitating um uh, coordinated and groups and links of solidarity and, and group resistance, um, which we're currently seeing um, in the Kill the Bill Coalition, which is led by Sister Uncut, but groups like Black Lives Matter and, and others are working alongside them. I suppose what I was what, trying to get to the point of was um, with, for example, the gender gap um, and, and the pay gap, and, and there seems to be some advancement, and so we're patting ourselves on the back as a society, oh look, we're doing things better for women, and that seems to be a bit more tangible and people can talk about it and we can unify in the sense that, oh, it's men against women or whatever the gender roles um, specifications are. And it seems to be that the advancement is for mostly white female middle-aged women, um, white female middle-aged women, um, but uh, that, that, that there seems to be a success going on there, an achievement. And, then, you know, it was only in the 1980s in this country that women were allowed to get a mortgage on their own you know, without having a man next to them. So you're right, I, I do agree about the patriarchy, but I think they're trying to make us into this kind of idea of competing in when it shouldn't be like that, it should be unified. And we'd, as a collective, we'd be so much more powerful, wouldn't we, in that sense? Yeah. All the that's, I suppose that's what I was trying to get out. I'm not very good at articulating. So no, 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 that's perfect. I mean, I, I think that's really crucial because, again, I think what you're drawing on is the difference between this kind of liberal and this radical critique, right? So this liberal critique says that capitalism is this kind of neutral thing, um, this objective kind of neutral, fair market system. Um, and there are these inequalities that exist. Um, and so we're trying to improve it by making sure, you know, by by having, um, by monitoring this gender pay gap within capitalism, trying to close that gender pay gap within capitalism, and eventually capitalism will get will get the policies right, um, and uh, and 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 then cap the market system will be fair. Whereas a radical critique will say, well, actually, if we think about where capitalism comes from and what capitalism relies on it in order to reduce reproduce its power, we can see that one of the things it relies on is the unpaid labour of women, right, in order to reproduce itself. Right, capitalism cannot exist without having women work for free in order to reproduce in, in order to do what we call reproductive work right reproductive labor so all of the work that takes place within the household that means that we can like have sustenance and live and um and create more workers for capitalism um, raise more workers capital all of this thing so capitalism relies on capitalism cannot exist without a gender pay gap right um because it's not going to start paying women for, to do that reproductive labour anytime soon. Um, and if it does, then it will not be capitalism as we know it. Um, um, so yeah, if that makes sense. Maybe they'll create robots who can do it or something. Um, okay. Uh, okay, any other questions? Um, yes, um, so um, interesting question, Amber, about inequalities um, seem to be a control of supposed problems, um, such as disability conversion therapy. So, I mean, uh, W.B. Du Bois, I think, articulates this really coherently um, when he asks the question, um, how does it feel to be a problem um, to Black America? And the way in which um, 
uh, we often see this articulate, um, we see questions of racism actually articulated as a problem of race. So we say that um, this, you know, um, um, we, we, problems arise from this, these specific communities um, um, who are basically oppressed rather than understanding as the problems arising from systems of governance. Um, I've, a guy I went to school with, a white guy I went to school with, went to live in Australia, there's lots of people do. Um, and I remember speaking to him about what he described as the Aboriginal problem. Um, and I said that, you know, Australia doesn't have an Aboriginal problem, right? it has a white problem. Um, right, but so you see the ways in which oppressed people are framed as the problem. I think it's a really great point, Amber. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, lovely quote from the Comedy River Collective as well. Cool. Um, any other questions? Oh, uh, oh, the question's already come up. Question for later. Are you aware of scholarship that considers how colonial policing styles are used in Britain today? Yes. So, um, the answer to your first question yes. If you go into the um, shared folder that I set up for us, um, there is an article, uh, there is a fold, there's, there are three folders within the folder, and there's one called history, and in that there is an article by a guy called Listrum called Domesticating Chemical Weapons. Um, that talks about that a great deal, but also the one underneath it by Moore, Built for, in, built for Inequality in a Diverse World, um, uh, The Historic Origins of Criminal Justice. Again, um, that does the same thing as well. So those, um, both those articles are quite useful for that. Um, and the second question: Do you know of any work? Do you know of any work done on diversity being a focus for metropolitan police forces, but not for rural police forces? Uh, no, I don't. I'm afraid. Off the top of my head. Apologies. Where's the link? Link to the folder. Okay, I'm just going to share the link to the folder. Oh, Nathaniel's done it for me. Thank you. Okay. Any other questions before we move on? I assume that's an old hand, no, sir? Yeah, okay, right, we're gonna move on and um, look at some more concrete examples of institutional racism, um, uh, just to hammer it home even more. Um, oh yeah, this was the other thing I was gonna say. So um, th there is of course a final definition of institutional racism, which um, I'm, I'm at pains to, um, to share with the rest of the group. Um, which is, of course, um, the our conservative uh, conception, in which um, rather than, um, and I, but I think what's enabled this conservative conception of institutional racism is the liberal conception. I think it's, and so, so while um, McPherson quotes or selectively quotes from the radical conception from uh, Touré and Hamilton, um, the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities selectively quotes from McPherson in order to further narrow their definition, in which um, not only do they, uh, so while the liberal definition dehistoricizes um, uh, race um, and, um, and also identifies it as operating in isolation from capitalism and the state, the, the conservative conception goes even further. Not only do, the, do they dehistoricize institutional racism, not only do they um, separate it from uh, critiques um, the power of capitalism and the state or, uh, or cl the class system, they also separate it from geography um, and, and really hammer home questions of social class and a number of other kind, um, uh, factors as well. Right? So rather than understanding the fact that, rather than appreciating the fact that actually, um, uh, race um, and uh, class and geography intersect with each other. So the experiences of a black person who lives in 
New York is likely to be different from a black person who lives in Lagos, for instance, right, because geography um, plays a crucial role. And similarly, a black person who's living, you know, in at Jesus College Oxford, where they're studying for their undergraduate degree, is likely to be different to the black experience of a black person living in a council house in Toxteth in Liverpool, right, um, for reasons that are geographical as well as, of course, class-based. What, the, what this conservative conception does is separate all of those things so that in order for institutional racism to, to exist, it has to be the only possible factor which is leading to um, unequal outcomes in, as an institution. So if it can be said that, oh, there are also poor white people, or there is clearly a divide geographically in Britain between some parts of the country and others, that explains away racism, rather than understanding racism as something which operates alongside questions of class, or I think as more accurately, we should say capitalism, um, and works alongside geography, or as perhaps we could say more accurately, states power and imperialism. Didn't want to spend too much time on that, but I feel like it's relevant. Does that kind of make sense? So there's yeah. this, as we go from the liberal to the conservative, there's this constant, um, I guess, decontextualization of institutional racism from first of its histories and its power in the state, but then even with the conservatives, basically from every other thing, as if people who experience racism only experience racism and don't experience class oppression, patriarchy, you know, the um, geographies of inequality, all of the other things that also exist. And Nathaniel, go ahead. That, that committee just disregarded the empire then, is it? <laughs> well, they, they did worse than disregard the empire. They said the empire does exist and it was a great thing, um, <laughs> including slavery. Um, Nathaniel, you got a hand up. Yeah, I just want to say, well, thank you for that last, that last part about how the, the separate, separate creating everything and seeing seeking institutional racism as the only factor as a way to like disarm the link between everything because before the call there was the civil debate i don't know what you what you want to call it um where they basically put health stats out talking about our maternity for black mothers like expecting children and human birth healthcare and covid which often names the links between class and negative social outcomes or health outcomes but then they had further research that talks about the progress made for um, racialized people in terms of looking at cancer, uh, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, ICU admissions, and, and I guess not death from ICU, like as a way to say, look, actually, based off data we have, the outcomes for these, these groups of people, um, Black, Asian, Chinese, are all better now in these circumstances to say, like, Yes, we understand you've been talking about this one issue, but look at all this other better stuff, and it's better, and the outcomes also better than white people, um, which I found really, I guess, frustrating because it's just like a big diversion almost. Um, so I think what you said about how it seeks to spread everything out is like is linked to how they can then present data like that because it shows well, you know, it's about based on being distraction, but it's like how data can be used and tested to just I guess support a an idea of, of that, someone said it in chat about like, the opposite of <laughs> intersectionality, like to support those ideas and it just really helps clarify everything, so. Yeah, certainly, definitely. And I, and I think the other the other crucial division it seeks to do is of course, divide pe people who are racialized differently, right? So it seeks to actually say that actually, although the racisms that you experience are different, um, they are, con um, 
the conservative tradition says the racisms you experience, even if racism does exist, which it doesn't, your experiences are all different. So how can it be racism? Whereas the radical thing says your experiences are all different because racism is uneven and it racializes people in different ways. And that's that's precisely its power. Um, it wouldn't be very dynamic if it racialized all the oppressed people in exactly the same way because it'd be a lot easier for us to get together and and resist number one but also crucially um because capitalism is uneven and needs different forms of exploitation from different types of people um it makes sense for capitalism to racialize people in different ways in order to exploit them in different ways um divide and conquer exactly uh bernice Hi, Adam. Um, sorry, I've got a howling dog in the background. If you can hear that, apologies. Um, just a couple of points based on what we were talking about then. There's this kind of continuum from radical to, to liberal to kind of conservative with regards to the reports that have come out and where they position themselves. I guess a question or an observation, one thing that I've been reflecting on over the past few months is that does Britain viewing itself as kind of a liberal nation, um, a lot of, in fact, my husband said it to me, he said, you know, the people, when you're talking to people about race and racism in the UK, the people you need to tackle are people like me, because I'm white, middle class, I think I'm not racist, but actually, what am I actively doing? You know, like, I, and because I think I understand it, and I've read White Fragility and a few other books, um, yeah, exactly. He's like, you know, I'm I'm almost more dangerous than the people who put their hands up there and say, you know, um, kind of national front type, because at least they're out there and they're saying it, whereas he's kind of recognising he has really good intentions, but they are intentions. Um, so he recognises that there's a gap in his knowledge and understanding. And he, you know, he kind of says, you know, I'm the I'm the population that needs to be educated and how do you go about doing that so that that's kind of one observation just interested in your thoughts on that and my other um thought was the Sewell report I I have a bit of a feeling that, that the conservatives have pushed it that far and it's that ridiculous that they've almost swung the pendulum too far um and I don't think they have the swathe of public opinion behind them on this that they may have expected. And had it have been watered down a bit, it would have been more dangerous. I almost think it's, but I, I don't know if that's me with my, now I'm doing an MA and I've learned all this stuff and suddenly I'm thinking differently. Um, or actually if all those liberal people out there just don't really give a crap because they've read a few books and they think that they're all okay. So I, I'm, I just wonder what, whether your view on the Sewell report is, it's almost so bad it's good because it's not gonna have the credibility behind it that other reports may have done. Um, yes, yeah, uh, two great points. Um, so yeah, I think um, the point, I mean, I am uh, not a fan of this uh, white fragility um, uh, thing, uh, personally, um, and I think it kind of does what that what's the kind of liberal um, interpretations of racism do, right? Well, um, I mean, uh, the person who authors that book doesn't really talk about kind of history or capitalism, um, and they kind of treat racism more as this, this kind of psychological condition, um, which can uh, be cleansed from the minds of white people if you um, uh, pay lots of money to go on her special courses. Um, and I, I, I don't know how useful that necessarily is. I think that's one of the best ways in which we can learn 
um, about anti-racism is through struggle, is through working with people, right? Um, I think that's I think that I think that's how we how we learn about anti-racism through our unions, um, through our communities, um, through those kinds of social interactions. I think for me, that's why I've learned so much um, about. So. I could use a quick example. Um, I learned a great deal about anti-Muslim racism, for instance, not through simply reading great books about anti-Muslim racism, which I have also um, had to do as well because that's my job, but also through, you know, being an undergraduate student and my Muslim friends being harassed by the police under the prevent legislation. Um, and through the, the ways in which they've experienced that and the way in which we, we challenged it because the university was complicit in the police harassing them um, because the university loved, loved a bit of prevent and still does unfortunately and this was the University of Nottingham where I was, where I was studying at the time um, and um, and it was through though it was through those interactions but crucially through those struggles through those through that campaigning that's how I kind of learnt um, not simply the kind of the theory and the history of of anti-Muslim racism but also how it affects people in their everyday lives and those types of things as well and I think through through struggle is, is, is really useful. The thing about the Sewell report, yeah, I think that, I think the Conservative Party did at the start try to be like, oh yeah, BLM protesting, you know, you've got a point, racism is really bad actually, and we probably should do something about it, you're right. Um, and that kind, and I think that they had a, a slight change of tact, uh, well not a slight change of tact, a, quite a drastic change of tact when they realised they weren't going to be able to kind of co-opt um, this movement uh, into their new kind of multicultural conservative um, uh, PR machine, which they've been um, quite good at. Um, and they and and I well, I think I'm going to pause there for a second because I think it's also really crucial that this is again demonstrates this link between liberalism and a conservative kind of racism, right? Because the liberals have said you need to have more diversity. That's how we're going to end racism. And conservatives said, right, I've got your diversity, and I raise you half a dozen. Um, like uh, black and Asian proto-fascists um, and everyone's like oh checkmates right <laughs> um, and so <laughs> um, and so um, so so we can see here that again this relationship between liberalism and, and more kind of reactionary um, conservative politics and so I think the, what the conservatives is instead done is like what, right we can just double down now right we've got our Asian home secretary we'll get her to push through this new um, crime policing and evidence and courts bill. Um, no one can say that it's racist, even though it's clearly so racist. Um, and then we'll just get some black academics in um, to write this report. And I think I think the, the way in which they've kind of strategized badly is that they think they can just get any black person to do mm. it and don't realize that some of the black conservatives are actually idiots. So like they've run like Sean Bailey as their like London mayor candidate, not realizing that he's just such an idiot. Like that no matter how much like money and PR and press they put behind him, he's just a buffoon. And he, you know, he's not, because he's like a black working class person, he's not a buffoon who can fail upwards like Boris Johnson can. Um, <laughs> So he he will just yeah he's just gonna he's just landed on his ass um, and similarly like oh, oh they're like oh Dr Tony Saul like he's an academic he'll just put this report together not thinking that again Tony Saul is actually like a total idiot and is just like making stuff up as he goes along um, and and that, thus bringing the whole the whole report into disrepute which is why when I teach it to my students and I want to find a photograph of Tony Saul with Boris Johnson on the internet I cannot find one because they because Boris Johnson and the government have distanced themselves from this report so quickly that Tony Saul is just like exposed uh, which is and also why there's that. Now he's 
now he's saying right so first of all they're saying oh we wrote it and then he gets absolutely trashed and not even the UN have come out right and now he's saying oh the cabinet office interfered and of course they interfered right everybody knows that and they jr'd him being the monitoring group right jr'd him being at the head of it before and it got kicked out right so we all knew this was going to happen but I think it's dangerous. I think it's super dangerous, right? Because it's so stupid, it's ridiculous, and it's been trashed. But you know, you know, you can imagine like the impacts around funding and all sorts of issues that will come off the back of it. Oh, we don't need to fund any of this anymore. Not that they do very much anymore, but because we don't have a problem with racism, you know. So I and it's like when they bring in immigration policy, right? They bring in like the new plan and we all kill ourselves fighting that. And they slip in all of this stuff while we're all busy doing that. And I feel it's one of these kind of red herring things. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm trying to pay as little attention to the report as I possibly can. Yeah, yeah. But yeah for that. precisely that reason, but yeah. And, um, Hina, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to sort of mention the point that Tony Morrison makes this point, doesn't it? Is, a, is around, it's a distraction. Um, so, you know, for, for me, I, well, I'm a policymaker, I have different interactions with, with things like these reports. But one of the things that I really sort of having to separate sort of where I look at the recommendations and go, what does this mean in terms of non-abolitionist reform? Um, and is any of it useful? Uh, and then looking at it as somebody who is a student uh, and looking at sort of more of the abolitionist reform movement is how do you move away from the distraction? One of the things that I'm quite curious about, and Adam, I know you did that session with Julian Go last week, is some of the parallel, I'm quite interested in the parallels in terms of the way we're talking about race in this country and the way that the Americans are talking about race. And, and maybe, I don't know if anyone's done a study on this, but one of the things I routinely, I spend a lot of time in the US and one of the things I talk about is the US never tends to say we don't have a race problem. If there's one thing they don't do, regardless of what party, you could be a Trump supporter, they do not come out and say we don't, racism, well, we're post-racism in this country. They don't do that. What they do in terms of white supremacy and, you know, sort of the insurrection in January is a different conversation. But nobody in the US I've ever found denies that racism exists. They just have, they either just don't care that racism exists, I don't really care, I'm white and it's great for me. In a way, I kind of almost appreciate that more because I feel as though you're wearing it on your sleeve. In the UK, and I think that this has definitely been the last few years more so, maybe I've just grown up and noticed it, is there's very, and I call it a very British approach. And people have chanted this and maybe it's a very European thing, but they're saying, we don't really have a problem in this country. It's all about classism. And we use that as an argument to go, well, race isn't an issue. And the problem with the Sewell report was, who is the white working class boys argument? We, you know, we all sit here in this room and know that there's been definite challenges for, you know, white working class boys. But if you only use that argument as competition to divide groups against each other, then ultimately you're not going to tackle any of the problems. If the problem was austerity for everyone, just tackle austerity. So I'm just wondering, do you think there's any truth to the sort of the British approach to that? And do you think that there's a bit of a deliberate discussion happening here, and I guess maybe sort of post-Brexit, of trying to appeal to a sector of the society in this country that wants to be in that space and go, racism isn't a problem, you're all just victims, get over it. And that is becoming, I used to think it was a minority, and now I'm starting to think it's not. And I guess think, if that is what we're dealing with, there is a, a, a louder growing abolitionist movement, and more people that are having discussions that you never would have seen, and yeah, okay, you can post your black squares on Instagram. But you know what? In one way, I'm like, well, people paying attention. I never saw people pay attention in 2013 or 2011 after Mark Duggan was shot. So I guess for me, the question is, is 
how do you reconcile with a society in Britain that really seems to be moving in a very concerning opposite direction? The Sewell report definitely gives ammunition to that, which is there's no problem. Look at all these Indians. Indians seem to be doing fine. So what's the problem for the rest of you? Whereas in the US and for all its faults, I know just a president saying racial justice is important feels like a little bit of a step that you can work with. And I guess for me, the question is when we, because we take so much of our narrative from the US, how do we acknowledge what is quite a British problem and maybe not transport over some of the arguments because they're not gonna land here in the same way. Stuff like defunding the police, great discussion, but people here will go, well, we actually defunded the police for quite a long time until this year. So I, for me, it's just a question, how do we bring over really solid arguments? You've got like Brie Newsom Bass, who's doing some really good stuff on abolition, but then recognize that there's a sector in Britain that's just getting louder and more vocal going, it's not a problem, you're all victims. Sewell Report was ideal for that. And I don't know how we challenge that other than all just talk preaching to the choir or we all just talk to the same people. Can I just add to that on, cool. on, on what you're saying really quickly? Yeah, sure, go ahead, go ahead. I, I participated in the, the Black Lives Matter protests last summer and in Birmingham and in London. And there were tons of very young people of different colors actually, of a lot of people of African descent in the protests. And there seemed to be this groundswell of very powerful resistance and anger to the British context of police repression and violence against people of color, right? And the, the George Floyd situation in the US was really, it seemed the galvanizing point because then all this history about uh, what had been done to people in Britain, including Mark Duggan and Stephen Lawrence and other people came out. And it just seems as if that movement, just to speak to what you were just saying, right? Um, just now, sorry, I didn't get your name. Is it Hannah? Hannah, I, I, I can't really see very well without being, being close up. Um, anyway, just seems to galvanize this momentum with especially younger people in the, because the, the BLM protests were done through hashtags and you know Twitter and everything with, uh, much uh, younger population and then older people heard about them as well. But the rage was there and the historical awareness seemed to be there because our placards had the names of these people on them. So just to speak back to, to your points about the, the, the people on the other side of that who were saying, no, it's not. When they were writing like that, it was racist and everything on this. Right? I just wonder. Not here for that. Plus the hostile environment that also has come to light much more with the Windrush atrocities, the violence against, I call them atrocities, against people being sent back to Jamaica and so on. So uh, am I getting too off the point here for Adam's discussion? No, no, not at all, not at all, not at all. Um, there's just, an, I'm, just, I'm just trying to type as you guys all talk so I don't remember, so I don't forget the thread of things that um, have been have been raised, but I think there are a number of crucial things here, right? Um, yeah, I, I agree, you know, 100%, right? Um, Britain does this thing where they say that race is this thing that happens in America, it used to happen in South Africa, but everything's kind of okay now. Um, and here in Britain, we do class. We don't do race, we do class. Um, and Britain's able to do this because for most of it, and I mentioned this last week, for most of its history, it's been doing racial governance, but not on the British mainland, right? So it has to do, have to do this colonial amnesia thing. And you really have to do the colonial amnesia thing really, hard to say that um, racism is a problem in America and South Africa but not in Britain and the fact that they speak English in both of these countries is just some it's because of osmosis or some less un, just some just some quirk of coincidence of history right um, you have to really actively 
dehistoricize racism in order to separate Britain from the United States and South Africa, right? Which are the go-to places for where racism is and, have got, and it's got nothing to do with Britain because we are a class society. I think it's also what's crucial for the United States is that they never, what they, while they love talking about race, they hate talking about class. They are a classless society. You've got the American dream. If you work hard, you can get there. Whereas here in Britain, we love class, right? We love class so much. We've still got a fucking aristocracy. We've like we love, we've got a queen, for good sake. We love we've got the feudal system still. We love class so much, right? Um, and but I think both of them are problematic, right? Because you can't understand race without understanding class, and you can't understand class without understanding racism. Because capitalism relies on racism, and racism becomes material through capitalism. Um, so so. The, these liberal approaches by liberals in the United States and liberals in the United Kingdom both do this work to decouple either racism or class um, from uh, from history um, and from the power that um, they have in in um, to reproduce themselves. Um, but yeah, um, I, yeah, I, I would I think I think that um, I think that yeah, ideas around defunding the police and police abolition are becoming more and more popular in the in the UK, and people are working hard to identify the fact that, of course, how police and prisons um, and border systems are funded here in the UK, they're very different, of course, to the US. There's, you know, it, it's nowhere near as decentralised, so people won't have that kind of direct kind of legislative approach. But I think the principle that we have a we have a prison system which has almost doubled since the early 1990s, right? That we have we have a we have a policing system where the police um, even if there was a kind of blip around the time of austerity, generally has been a consistent increase in both police numbers on our streets, but crucially as well, the power of the police, of surveillance, of monitoring, of um, the use of weapons, and including firearms. All of these things has, has, has quite on a consistent basis increased over the last 30 or 40 um, years. I think then speaks to a more, to a less kind of legislative approach, but a more kind of the idea that we can take we should erode the resources and power of these institutions and redistribute those resources and powers to community-led alternatives to our police and prison system um, which again i said as i said we'll hopefully we'll talk about a lot more on friday um and yeah i, I think one of the and again i wanted to talk about this more on friday but i think it's just i think I, I think what's really crucial is that what i would say is that for the last two or three years certainly last two years, I don't think the anti-racist movement has been preaching to the choir. I think that the process of 2020 saw mobilizations in small towns and villages all over this country that have never had anti-racist mobilizations ever. Um, I've been working with a group called Anti-Racist Cumbria, which is like a massive, um, like, grassroots-led organisation emerging from this relatively rural part of the country where people who have not been involved in anti-racism before um, are, are, are really organised and doing really uh, crucial work that we've never seen before. Um, and the fact that, yeah, we've, we've just seen the largest, 2020 was when we saw the largest anti-racist protest in British, his, British history tells us that, we, that the movement must be reaching people that it's never reached before. Um, so hope, yay. Um, so Adam, right? Here we are talking about institutions, right? But all the race educators I speak to say that they've never seen so much engagement, right? I'm going into organizations everywhere, but everybody wants to do some work, right? So it might not be perfect, right? Of, you know, it's, it's obviously not, but there is huge engagement like all over the place. I mean, obviously some of it are doing, doing it for PR, but I think a lot of people actually want to bring change. That's what I experienced. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so there's a question in the chat about whether we should end using the term anti-racism. Yeah, I mean, it's one of them things where like, we want to end 
race, right? We want to dismantle race, but in order to dismantle it and abolish it, right? And no longer have these racialized divisions, we have to name it as far as I'm concerned. Um, and similar things with like, you say anything like, you know, we no longer have, want to have a working class, right? We want people, we want economic inequality, but in order for, for us to dismantle the class system, we have to name it. Um, uh, so yeah, um, uh, and, and so, and so, yeah, I, I, yeah I, I don't know what Paul's on about, really. I do know what Paul's on about, but I don't know how practical it is for organising. I think it's a good, like, scholarly thing to think through, but I don't know how practically applicable it is, especially if you want to reach people who aren't familiar with these um, perhaps more abstract ideas. Um, uh, okay, so, oh, yeah, so Hina's made a, a good point about the Sewell reports. Yeah, I think he was just kind of forwarding his career, but he's destroyed it instead, I think. Um, okay. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Good point about um yeah what Kahindra Kahinde writes about. Um so I'm just reading through all these questions. Okay, does anyone have any other questions before we've got 15 minutes left? Um does anyone have any other questions? Uh, I think that's an old hand, Hina, so I'll ignore that. Right, no more questions. Right. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about you'll never guess what, institutional racism. Um just to give us some concrete examples so that we're not going to leave today still being like, oh, there is a minutiae of ambiguity there for me. Um, so um, I've got a lot, um, hopefully it's not going to be death by graphs, but I'm going to show you some graphs. Um, so these are some, um, and some of you might be kind of familiar with these. Um, oh, I haven't got very long actually, so I'm going to skip a load of stuff. Okay. So a clear, for, for me, one of the clearest um, examples of institutional racism is in the police's gangs matrix. Um, people aren't sure familiar with this term, the gang. Um, it's, uh, and it's not a crime, it's a category of crime, similar to the mugger, which we talked about on Monday. Um, and uh, so the gang is, uh, or gang crime, is a category of crime, uh, which kind of hoovers up lots of existing uh, crimes, right? Um, whether it be forms of violent crime done by groups of people um, or theft, but it could also be other things as well more recently, such as um, inciting violence, which is a, a favourite of the police, um, which uh, is usually done by them um, spending inordinate amounts of time on YouTube watching uh, rap videos uh, to find a young person who they consider to have incited violence so they can track them down, arrest them and put them in prison for singing a song. Um, and what two um, two uh, really great um, uh, criminologists in, based at Manchester Metropolitan University um, called Patrick Williams and Rebecca Clark um, were really interested in this idea of the gang because they saw all these newspapers with like Gunchester for Manchester and Shottingham for Nottingham in the Nottingham Post and um, uh, Gangs of London, which was this big um, campaign by the Evening Standard newspaper, which they launched ironically, or perhaps not ironically, um, the week before the inquiry began into the police killing of Mark Duggan, um, which was, uh, the inquiry was in 2013. And so what they did was, um, and what these what the police do is they set up these gangs uh, databases um, full of people that their intelligence tells them um, are gang members. Um, and this can be used to um, impose injunctions on people, um, which can prevent them from going to certain places, speaking to certain people, um, using the Internet and social media, going to college. Um, 
uh, all sorts of uh, injunctions and being imposed on. And, and if they break these injunctions, then they can receive a custodial sentence. So people can actually receive a custodial sentence, not for committing a crime, but for the police having intelligence that they are likely to in one point in the future commit a crime and thus have an injunction imposed upon them. Um, and then um, when they break that injunction by going on YouTube or you know hanging out with their cousin or whatever it is they do that breaks the injunction, they can receive a custodial sentence. Um, but also, according to a report by Amnesty International, which I can share in the shared drive, um, the police have rung up further education colleges and said, you've got a young, following young people here who um, you've registered, registered at the further education college, they're on our gang's database, we suggest you don't admit them. They've called up housing associations, say you've got families with people who are on the gang's database, again, we suspect, suggest you don't house them. Of course, all things eroding people's access to housing and education, which unsurprisingly makes them all the more likely to come into contact with the criminal justice system right um okay um and so what they did was they went to greater manchester police and london's metropolitan police and said can we have your gang's database please broken down by ethnicity and they said yep sure here you go um and then they said so how do you define you know what criteria do you use um for your you know in regards to your intelligence as to who is or who isn't a gang member and they said um it's generally helping um, the extent to which people are involved in what's called serious youth violence. So this can be anything from um, very serious offences like attempted murder or discharging a firearm, all the way down to less serious violent offences like uh, aggravated assault, which is like spitting at somebody or shoving or something like that. And they said, right, can we have all the people that you've identified as being involved in serious youth violence and have that broken down by ethnicity, please? They said, yep, yeah, sure, here you go. And this is what they found. Um, in the, the top two pie charts, um, um, are Greater Manchester Police um, and the bottom two ch pie charts are London's Metropolitan Police. So you can see here the blue section are Black, Asian, minority, ethnic young people. 89% uh, of the people on the gang's uh, database in Greater Manchester are Black, Asian, minority, ethnic, and only 11% of them are white. Yet when it comes to serious youth violence, 77% of the serious youth violence is carried out by white young people and only 23% is carried out by Black, Asian, minority, ethnic young people. Over here in London, 80% of, of the people in the gang's matrix are uh, Black, Asian, minority, ethnic, only 20% white. Yet when it comes to serious youth violence, it's 50-50, which is roughly proportionate with London's youth population. Right? So what does that tell us? What it of course tells us is that the criteria the police say they use it, used for identifying gang members and putting them onto their gang's databases is not the criteria that they in fact use. But the second thing, of course, tells us is that, that race is a far more salient indicator as to who is or who is not put onto the gang's database. Why is this important? I think this is important because, number one, of course, it's evidence of institutional racism, right? When the normal functioning of policing produces racist outcomes. But crucially, it's not arising because there are bad police officers make um, uh, conspiring against black and Asian communities in Britain to put them onto this database. Right? That's, that's not what's happening. It happens because the normal functioning of policing produces racist outcomes and has done not simply for years or decades or generations, but for centuries. And is so fundamentally embedded into the normal function of that institution that the police will hand over this data to academics, not even conceptualizing the fundamental contradictions which lie in that data. And I think this helps, I think, I think this is one a useful way of illustrating how we can not simply evidence institutional racism by identifying the manner in which it's so fundamentally embedded into um, uh, 
um, uh, into uh, into the normal functioning of policing. Uh, yes, Hina, um, it's risk published in a report called Dangerous Associations, uh, published by Patrick Williams and Rebecca and Becky Clark. It was published by this uh, the Centre for Crime and Justice Studies at King's College. Uh, London, but I will put it into the shared folder for this week so that everyone can take a look. And I'll also share the Amnesty, Inter report, um, Amnesty International report into the Gangs Matrix as well, which is also very useful. Um, right, we've got five mins left. Um, I was going to have I was going to have us all watch a, a speech by David Cameron where he declares an all out war on gangs and gang culture um, and how these articulations of racism um, or this, this, this non overt racial language is a very kind of British racism, um, because, um, uh, uh, of course, um, you wouldn't have David Cameron articulate race in this overt way. It's a very crass thing that they do in South Africa and the United States. You know, we're far more honourable and respectable here in Britain. And all we'll do is plaster images of black people identifying them as gangs police black people as horrendous gangsters and then make a speech um, telling people um, that um, i'm going to declare an all-out war on gangs and gang culture so that everybody listening knows exactly who i'm talking about um, if you want to watch if you're if you're that much of a masochist and you'd like to watch the david cameron speech um, it's on the, it's on the the, the uh, url is on the slides um, it is Num slide number 57 um, and there is a delightful picture of David Cameron on that slide um, standing in front of a professionally curated uh, graffiti wall um, of a youth club in his Oxford constituency. Um, any other questions or thoughts? Um, oh no they've got something in the chat from Hina which I missed apologies. I also think using the language of anti-racism is useful because it moves us out of the space that you're not either actively racist or not. So if you don't think that you're racist, the work is done. Ah, yeah, exactly. So, and I think that's a really important point from Hina, right? Because while the normal functioning of institutions produces racist outcomes, the normal functioning of society, as we know it, produces racist outcomes, right? So um, uh, the, the, I think the, the famous phrase is, right, you can't be neutral on a moving train, right? It's not enough to simply be neutral in, an, in, a, in, a, in a system of inequality and oppression, right? We have to actively push against um, those systems. Um, uh, Bernice? Hi, Adam. Um, can you talk at all about joint venture quickly and, and how that features now in terms of policing and race, racism in the police? Sure. So um, I, I assume you mean joint enterprise. Is that is that is that we were already? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> That's Thank right. you. Fine. Sorry. Yeah. Um, Okay, um, so I'm going to talk about it very, very briefly, um, uh, but um, if people do want to read more about it, the um, documents Dangerous Associations, which I'm going to um, put in the folder, will talk about it far more coherently than I can. But joint enterprise is effectively a power, is a legal doctrine, not a power, it's a legal doctrine, which goes back to the 19th century, in which um, two people are having a chariot race, and they're racing each other, and it's very um, dangerous, um, and one of the chariots knocks somebody over, and in courts, the judge decides that both people um, should uh, go to prison for manslaughter. Um, because they, they're both culpable. And what happens with this um, legal doctrine is this, um, it's taken and it's applied um, to um, young mainly young people in this country when a serious offence is carried out. But the police can identify, um, the police intelligence um, is used in the court to demonstrate links between uh, the person who has been directly um, who, who they say actually carried out the violent offence um, and the people that they are in a so-called gang with. 
Um, so if one person commits a very violent offence, but the police says, look, they are in a gang and there are 20 people, um, or, I don't know, 10 people who are in that gang, even if they weren't uh, present, directly present during that particular violent incident, they can be charged with the same offence. So there are, there are teenagers doing 10, uh, 15, almost 20 years in prison, not for committing offence and a murder, but because the police have said they are in a gang and the person the police say they're in the same gang as has been found guilty of committing a murder. And of course, as you can imagine, the way in which the police produce evidence to the courts that these young people are in the same gang is very, very spurious indeed. Um, it will often be social media posts or um, uh, YouTube videos. So they might be like a rap video on someone's estate. Um, and this a young person can be seen in the background of this video. And rather than that being interpreted as the court as, oh my God, there's a music video on my estate. I want to be in it because want to be hashtag famous no it's because they're in the same gang and therefore should all be considered culpable um, for this um, violent offense and it's and it's led to a massive escalation and um, contributed to the escalation of um, uh, our prison population which as I mentioned before has almost doubled since uh, the early 1990s and it's a um, it's the bread and butter of Sir, Sir Keir Starmer who was head of public prosecutions as these um, initiatives were rolling through. But I think there's also something really crucial about it as well that I'm going to end on, which is the fact that the way in which joint enterprise was popularised was through the use of the court system for anti-racism. Because the most famous people who were ever convicted under joint enterprise were the people convicted of killing Stephen Lawrence. And so while joint enterprise was, was being celebrated by campaigners as being this bastion of anti-racist freedom, because look, we've been able to use the court systems to incarcerate the people responsible for murdering Stephen Lawrence in 1993, I think what it also demonstrates is a warning to the use of the court system as a tool of anti-racism, because the vast, well not the vast majority, but a hugely disproportionate number of people who have been incarcerated under joint enterprise um, have been young black people. But they got off. They didn't get prosecuted. I mean, a couple got found later because they found like some DNA evidence or whatever. I, th I think th I think three people have been incarcerated. If I remember correctly, two, 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 two went down. Two went down. Two, yeah, and One, that was sorry. Two. And I think that was, as far as I'm aware, it was joint enterprise, which was the doctrine, which meant that despite the fact that there, was, there wasn't concrete evidence that they dealt the, the lethal blow to Stephen, because of the joint enterprise doctrine, um, they were able to incarcerate yeah. them and charge, they charged them with, and find them guilty of murder. Um, in, is Scotland's prison population in decline post-2020 linked to their differing approach to youth crime? Um, that's a good question, Nathaniel. I'll have... I don't have the confidence to say 100% yes, but I know that Scotland do have a very different approach to crime and to, to, to criminal justice, um, particularly quite famous things like the Glasgow model, um, which I think is useful to the extent that it replaces punishment with things like addiction services, mental health practitioners, youth services, access to education and training, those types of things. But I think the problem with it is that it's all under the jurisdiction of the police rather than them being independents. And I think it's really important that these kinds of community-led alternatives are run independently um, not, uh, and are not run by the police, uh, particularly an institutionally racist police force, um, but uh, uh, the police force nonetheless. So I think we, 
I think we would struggle to understand what's happening in Scotland necessarily as an abolitionist reform because what we're effectively doing is expanding the power of the police so that they now have more control over mental health provision, um, uh, uh, addiction services, um, uh, training and education, all of these other kind of uh, sections of, of, of social life, which I think would be better run not by the police. Um, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but also Scotland have done good things like more or less completely abolished school exclusion, which again um, is a, a route. Um, there's a great uh, paper by the Institute of Race Relations called the Prue to P Prison Pipeline. Pupil referral units are where young people are sent once they've been permanently expelled from, excluded from school. Um, and there's this Prue to Prison Pipeline where people are expelled from school and, and um, uh, are far more likely to come into contact with the criminal justice system and be incarcerated. Okay, any other questions? Where's that? Hina, go ahead. Yeah, so um, I know you've skipped a few slides just because we've all been really, really engrossed in the discussion today, which means two hours isn't enough. But pre sort of slide 50, what, uh, 57, you do quite a bit around Operation Blunt. Um, and you talk about sort of what my, one of my challenges is, is that when you look at sort of stop and search as one of, if not the most actively racist policy and i don't and one of the things that i try to explain is and i don't mean that in a police officers are deliberately going out and going you're black i want to stop and search you my sure. general approach to calling something a racist policy is if it's not anti-racist if it's creating racial inequity it's racist regardless of the reasons of where that comes about um, and i think that's some of the challenges around when you say that there's disparities people assume that means every police officer in the whole every country like is, is racist and they're going out there are some there are definitely some police officers, but actually it's because the, the whole the, the whole way the, the way that stop and search works is basically, you, you know, you're trying to find you're over policing those areas. You find what you're looking for. But I guess one of the things I wanted to ask about was in the space of disparate use of police powers, stop and search being one. One of the biggest challenges is or one of the biggest arguments is and Gus John writes a really interesting section in that article about um, uh, the way our communities are going out and sort of slaughtering each other around knives and I, that was the one bit of the article I wasn't 100% sold on because I think there's this argument here of well even if stop and search is disparate it's only because these communities 16 year old black kids so between the age of 16 and 25 are you know relentlessly going at each other with knives so there's for me there's that one challenge and, and where that fits into you know is there a problem in the community which I, I, it's it's not about that but Gus John kind of makes a weird argument about what does he say he says and um, given the rate at which our young people are slaughtering one and each one another, why is Black Lives Matter movement being so silent? This idea around sort of like black on black crime, because yeah, that's often used as an argument. But then the other thing on stop and searches is, is that most of it isn't used for serious violence. So even if you could prove that it did tackle knife crime, which it doesn't, because that's what Operation Blunt did, most of it's used for drugs. And then that takes that link back to why do we see drugs as this like moral issue? Is it because we think it, contributes to gang culture or we've just convinced ourselves that it contributes to gang culture and they're sort of kind sorry I know people are leaving but they're the sort of key challenges I see in the space of those police powers that are most disproportionately used. Yeah um, so very quickly I'm just going to first just put in the chat um, an article that I wrote about Operation Blunt 2 um, which people can have a look at if they want to um, but so I think there's a number of things I think in terms of Gus John and what he says about violence that exists, that's non-state violence that exists within communities. I think that, that was published in 2019. And I think that 
groups like Black Lives Matter have been much more articulate about alternatives to policing and how actually we can reduce violence and harm within our communities by investing in things like youth services, housing, mental health provision, so on and so forth. These are the things that are required. And there's a really great organisation called the Forefront Project, which is a, a Black-led uh, youth project in North London, um, which is also an abolitionist project, where they've actually been putting these kinds of ideas into practice. Um, so I, um, we can talk about that in more detail next week. Um, but um, uh, but yeah, in, in, in relation to, yes, yeah, stop and search, yes, there's very little evidence that stop and search um, improves public safety and reduces harm. There's very little evidence that, um, uh, um, that, it's, that um, uh, it's used in, that, most, as we know, most of searches aren't even for quote unquote priority crimes, um, right? Therefore, small amounts of cannabis and things like that. Um, and so we, we can see the ways in which, even within the logic of the police themselves, there is a failure. Um, but more crucially, I think, for, for our understanding, um, there is no evidence at all that the, that the expansion of this use of power improves public safety, either uh, as by, by solving crimes and preventing crimes, but even crucially as operating as a deterrent. Um, and I think that's one of the things that Operation Blunt 2 um, demonstrates for us as well. It doesn't even operate work as a deterrent, um, as if like living in a police state is something that is um, um, the best way in which we can improve our public safety. Um, cool. Um, would you mind to share the chat in a document? Oh, um, I don't know how to share. Can you share chats into a document? I don't know how to do that. Um, I'll try to work out how to do that. And if I can, I will. But as I mentioned, the audio from this is also being recorded. So um, you can come back and listen um, uh, if, if you guys want to. I, yeah, I'll, I'll Google how to download the chat um, from, a Zoom, from a Zoom conversation. Hopefully Google will give me the answers. There's three little dots. There's a little square box and three little dots at the bottom of the chat and you can click on save chat. And then ah. Okay. 